Hi, I'm Ellie Roark. I'm Wilson Gall. And we're bringing you the stories and questions from the latest in bird research. Today we're going to be talking about uh, an article that was published in 2017 in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology. This is from the end of the year, December, and it's called Altitudinal Range Shifts of Birds at the Southern Periphery of the Boreal Forest, 40 Years of Change in the Adirondack Mountains, written by Jeremy J. Kirschman and Allison E. Van Curen. So basically what this study did is it took a 1976 study that looked at um, kind of the altitudinal range of birds found on the side of four mountains, and it tried to replicate that on one of the mountains in the Adirondacks. Yeah, so this study just basically took the data from one of those mountains from the 1976 study on Whiteface Mountain in the Adirondacks and repeated the surveys in the same places uh, using the same sort of survey protocol, which lets them compare the results. So so one thing for comparing over long times like this, this is 40 years, which is fairly long, but one of the real challenges is that if your study design is very different in two different time periods, then you can't really compare your results very well. I mean, that's the case with any study, and, and a lot of science is done in sort of controlled experiments where you set up the experiment to, to keep your protocol the same, you know, your sort of methods the same in all the different sort of places that you're studying. But obviously it's really hard to do that over timescales of more than a few decades because researchers retire uh, and that sort of thing. So, right, absolutely. So this resurvey method is a way to sort of go back into the literature and find an old study that was done and try to redo that study with the same methods so that the results are really comparable. Yeah, and in fact, they were able to replicate the methods fairly closely because these authors were in communication with the original authors of the paper and had the original data sheets, which is kind of cool. Um, and they were able to um, basically follow the original study quite closely because of that. Yeah, it's the, the authors of this study got the original data sheets from the 1976 authors because the, the data had not been published in that article. And I think there's a movement now in a lot of um, scientific disciplines for authors to publish their data along with the article. So the article might get page space in the printed journal, uh, and it would take a lot of pages and space to print all the data. But So they don't print it in the journal, but if you go on the journal website, you can frequently download the actual raw data. And so in the future, that's going to make these sorts of... of resurveys and subsequent analyses a lot easier because you don't have to sort of call up the researcher to get their data back. But in this case they were able to get the original data sheets from those researchers from the 1976 study. Yeah, so essentially what they were looking at is trying to figure out what range of altitudes birds use, a particular species of birds use, um, and how bird species are distributed over these altitudinal ranges on mountains. And the reason um, that these current authors, the, the most recent authors, feel that this is important is obviously now because of um, climate change issues. There's a hypothesis that bird altitude ranges will change as climate change um, affects the temperature and the environmental conditions on these mountains. And, and specifically, the, the prediction is that with both latitude and altitude, as the climate warms, you'll see that species move 
to the north in latitude, or actually towards the poles in latitude, in the northern hemisphere it's to the north. And then in altitude, they'll move up in altitude. They're basically trying to stay in the same temperature zone, but as the whole world warms, you have to move higher in altitude or, or higher in latitude to get those same temperatures. So that's the prediction. Right, and then along with that prediction, some models are predicting right now that um, birds that already exist at high altitude will be kind of pinched off the top of those high altitude ranges and will potentially be extirpated from their range, just not exist there anymore. Right, if, if you're living at the top of the mountain because that's the temperature you like, right. and then the top of the mountain gets warmer, you don't have anywhere to move up to. Yeah, exactly, so those birds might not uh, have anywhere to go anymore. Um, but another reason the authors were interested in, in this altitudinal study specifically is because a lot of bird science happens with citizen science data right now. Um, there's a lot of amateur birders, as you probably know if you're listening to this podcast. And, uh, and so people are recording relatively high quality data and submitting it to large scale databases like eBird and things like that. So, um, we have a lot of citizen science data covering large geographic scales, but at the, at the smaller resolution scale, there's very little citizen science data for um, showing changes in, in altitude and elevation in terms of bird distribution. So it's really hard to look at bird distribution with, um, in altitude with citizen science data. Historically, a lot of um, breeding bird atlases or things like that are done at a scale of maybe you know, 20 mile grid cells or 10 mile grid cells or even one square mile grid cells. And that sort of gives you a distribution of the species across your state or across your country uh, at that sort of averaged at that one kilometer or one mile block level. Um, but obviously you might have a mountain that actually is smaller than a 1k square. And so those big atlases, while they're good for tracking latitude changes, they can, they can see if a species is moving north, they're not so good at seeing whether a species is moving up in altitude necessarily. Yeah, exactly. So the primary questions that the authors of this article wanted to address were essentially, one, do previous assessments, previous studies of altitudinal shifts based on citizen science surveys reflect the actual movement of bird ranges in the Adirondacks at this site that they're um, studying. And another question they wanted to address is, are the altitudinal range shifts of birds consistent with what we would expect from climate change? So regional temperature, are regional temperature changes during the breeding season affecting the altitudinal range of bird populations? And then the final thing that they were looking at, the final main question is, are the sort of altitude range that the birds are living in on these mountains getting smaller? Because if you're, the, the prediction about birds sort of being squeezed out of mountain ranges as they have to move upslope to track temperature, and they get to the peak of the mountain and they just have nowhere else to move to, what you'd expect is to see their sort of suitable niche or their suitable altitude range getting smaller as those warmer temperatures move up because the, the bottom of their range, basically the lower end of their range, is moving up the slope, but the top of their range can't move any farther than the top of the mountain. So you, you might see that total niche getting narrower, which means a reduction in suitable habitat, basically. So they looked for that reduction in, in range size. 
there's a couple different ways to measure a shift like that, and it, it kind of depends on what you're interested in. So one thing that you might measure is sort of the highest altitude that you ever find a bird at and the lowest altitude that you ever find a bird at for whatever your species is. Um, and that sort of gives you a sense of the total altitude range that species can tolerate. The other th another thing you might be interested in is sort of what is the, the optimum or the main home. So out at the very limits, at the very lowest and the very highest, you'd expect that to be sort of on the border of being suitable for that species. And you, they maybe wouldn't be very common there. But right in the, the core, the center, the heart of their suitable range, you'd expect maybe a lot more of that species, a lot of individual birds. And so to look at that, you might look at sort of the average center of their sort of altitude range. These authors looked at both, and I have to say they they looked at the at the very lowest and very highest records of the birds in the, on their transect. They had a the transect follows a road up this mountain, and incidentally, this mountain was um, the site of the downhill ski races for the 1980 Lake Placid Olympics. It's in the Adirondacks in northern New York. Uh, the, I think the downhill races I read were on the southern slope of this mountain. This transect is on a road that goes up the northern slope. Uh, one of the great things about doing the resurvey study in this place is that the forest is pretty much unchanged since 1976 when the first study was done. There hasn't been any more development or anything. Um, so anyway, they looked at where these birds were found at the very, the, sort of the lowest place they were seen and the highest place they were seen. And they used that as a measure of the altitude range for the birds. And that, to me, isn't actually a very good measure, because out at the edge of ranges, you expect species to be rare, um, because they're sort of on the edge of suitability. And therefore, you, you expect that even if it can sort of live there, you might not see it every time you go out. Um, you know, it would be uncommon, and therefore, you're not going to detect it every time. And so the, the total range of the altitude is going to be very sensitive to getting a lucky glimpse of a rare bird. Um, you know, a bird that might be very rare at high altitude. Uh, if you go out one day, you might not see it. If you go out the next day, you might see it just because you got lucky. Yeah. And in this study, they, they only... The 1976 study did all the surveys over two days. So they went to each site once, basically. This, this study went to each site two times, I think. So it's very possible that they could have just uh, not... Yeah, I think they went two times per year for two years. Yeah, okay. Right. So they yeah. had... Which, which is another problem because they, they didn't... So they, they used the same methods from the 1976 study, but they didn't keep the survey effort the same. That's correct, yeah. I, I glanced back at the 1976 study, and they estimated that they had about one to one and a half hours of data collection at each survey point in the 1976 study, and this article um, from 2017 had about five or six hours at each thing, which means you're much more likely to, to see a rare bird, and they didn't correct for that difference in sampling effort in their statistical analyses that I could find. So that just makes... So basically, I don't really trust their measure of the lowest and highest places where a bird was seen, because I think that is sens very sensitive to sort of getting lucky and seeing a bird or getting unlucky and not seeing a bird. Sure. A more robust way to do that would have been to take, you know, the, the average of the top 10 altitudes or something. Well, they also, they used in their statistical analyses the abundance-weighted mean. Yeah. So they were looking at 
at kind of where the bulk of the birds were found. Um, right. So they, they estimated the lower and the upper boundaries, which I don't really trust at all right. the way they estimated them. Yeah. They also estimated the middle or like where the, the prime sweet spot was for that bird. And that measure I do trust um, in, in this study. I think that is the, the more appropriate measure of where the, the altitude range of the birds is here. Hmm. So what, what did you think, Ellie? Like what was your... What was your sense when they measured that middle of the, sort of the prime middle of the range for birds? They measured, I don't know, 40-some bird species. Did they find that birds were moving up the slope as predicted? Yeah, so they found, I guess they found about 42, they found 42 species that were also detected in the 1976 study. And for those species, they increased in altitude by about 83 meters is... Um, what was observed. And that was 26 species shifting uphill, 11 species shifting downhill, and five species not shifting at all. Um, but their statistics are a little tough to grapple with in that they, they didn't put any confidence intervals or um, variance estimates associated with that average shift that they calculated. So it's hard to tell um, how representative that average shift uh, is of the actual bird population. Yeah, that's right. They, they report significance levels as a p-value. So we know that the average shift was up, was not zero. The birds didn't stay at the same altitude but we don't really know how much they moved uphill. They sort of give that estimate of 80 meters, but we don't know if it's 80 meters or if it's really 50 or really 120. So the, the estimate is, is not very useful in the way they've reported the statistics. But nevertheless, they, they show that sort of the, the average shift was uphill. But as you said, there's 20 some species they found move uphill, but 11 they found move downhill. So, you know, a, a good chunk of these species are actually doing the opposite of what's predicted, which is that they're moving down as things get warm. Because they also, we should mention, they did get some uh, daily temperature data from a weather station in Lake Placid, which is, uh, four, I think they said 14 kilometers away. So that's good. It's very representative weather data. They have daily temperatures, and they tracked that over the 40 years from 1976 to the present. And the, both the daily minimum temperatures and the daily maximum temperatures do seem to be getting higher, so the area is warming. But despite that warming, almost like a quarter of the birds moved downslope rather than upslope. Yeah, and they seem to be working pretty hard to justify their result that the birds are on average moving upslope because they cite a bunch of different studies in their discussion section that have all found that birds are moving downslope in other areas where um, these studies have been conducted, and I haven't read any of these additional studies, so I'm not totally sure um, what their methods were and how comparable they are exactly, but um, the authors of this study that we're discussing today seem to be putting forth some serious effort to justify why their results are different than everyone else's. Well, I don't, I don't think their results are all that different. I mean, as you say, a lot of studies have found birds moving both up and down. So to put it in context, with latitude, the north-south movement, a lot of species in a lot of different taxonomic groups, birds, butterflies, you name it, there are pretty good consistent results showing species ranges moving towards the poles. In the northern hemisphere, they're moving towards the south as predicted with temperature changes. And that, it, I, would, I would say, you know, I've read quite a few of those studies, I would say that's a pretty robust 
finding at this point. Just species ranges are moving towards the poles. Mm. But with altitude, it's not as clear-cut. Yeah. I've, I've actually read quite a few of these other bird studies, and they do find a mix. They, we, they expect things to move up in altitude, but then you study a specific mountain or a specific ecosystem, and you find things moving all over the place. Some moving up, some moving down, some not moving anywhere. So the situation with altitude seems to be more sort of complex or, or at least more varied than the situation with latitude. And so I don't, so I think that it's not necessarily that they're trying to justify the results, but I think everyone's kind of looking to explain this. You know, why is this, why are so many birds moving downhill as things get warmer? This is really not what people were expecting. And I think there's a real attempt in the literature right now to figure out why that's happening and figure out how frequently that's happening. Yeah, this DeLuca and King study also from 2017 that they cite a couple times throughout the article basically showed that low elevation species are moving upslope and high elevation species are moving downslope and who knows why. <laughs> yeah, I didn't read that article so I don't know what their explanation was. Right. Um, I would say, you know, that it's it's sometimes hard to disentangle the effects and, and with many of these studies over any kind of long time period, 50 years or 100 years, you have the problem that not only is the climate changing, but land use is changing. And, and for birds, land use is a really important factor. So mm -hmm. if you have a, a sort of mature forest and you start um, cutting parts of that and building roads into it and building houses into it and it gets more fragmented or you sort of clear cut it for logging or something and then there's a new younger forest that regrows, that really affects the birds there. And yeah, and it should be noted that in this study, the lower elevations were the only ones subject to some land use change. There were a couple houses built and a new road cut through or something along those lines. I'm forgetting the exact details, but the then there's a, a gate, essentially, and then the upper altitudes are protected. Actually, that's kind of a cool little side note. They At that very lowest altitude station... Um, to figure out whether land use had changed, they actually use Google Earth. And I don't know, on Google Earth, when you're looking at like the satellite images, there's a little bar and you can like scroll back in time and see the satellite images from yeah, totally. previously. And this is a, a tool that I use all the time, uh, just sort of really quickly to do a little exploratory thing to get a rough sense for whether land use has been changing in some area that I'm interested in. I just right. quickly log on to Google Earth. I slide that little bar around and kind of see if buildings have been built or if the vegetation has changed. And they use that here, and what they were able to, to see pretty clearly on Google Earth is that for most of their transect, the forest has really not changed over yeah. the 40 years. At the very lowest altitude, I think they could see that two houses had been built nearby, and there was one uh, sort of area that had been logged and cut. So that makes this study kind of good and robust in, in some ways, because you don't have to disentangle the effect of land use change from yeah. the effect of climate here, because we've got the satellite images, and... This is sort of protected forest, and it was mature forest back in 1976. It's still mature forest now. So land use isn't explaining these movements in the way that some other studies it might be, you know, when there's been more land use in the area. Yeah, and in fact, the 1976 study used, um, I can't remember what the other Adirondacks uh, peak was, but the other two mountains that were featured in that original study of four were um, Mansfield and Camelsump in Vermont, which I happen to just anecdotally know have also been protected in a number of ways. So it would be interesting to, to go back and replicate the full study with all four of those peaks if, in fact, 
you can kind of disentangle the land use change aspect from all of them. That's pretty neat. We should also say that um, even though there were all kinds of observed differences between 1976 and today in this study that we're talking about, um, their results didn't show a difference in the breadth of elevation used by the bird species. So essentially birds are occupying the same range of elevation um, in terms of breadth, even if the specific altitude of that range isn't exactly the same. Yeah, and that's an important result because remember the, the concern about uh, species moving up slopes in mountains is that they sort of run out of room and their lower boundary moves up, but their upper boundary can't move up anymore because it's at the peak. And so they sort of get squeezed off the top. Here they tested whether that width or that range, that total altitudinal range is getting smaller and they didn't find evidence of that. Yeah. Um, one result, I'm flipping through the article here really quickly because there were a couple species that were seen in this study that had not been detected back in 1976. And those, I'll read those species off to you because they'll probably be familiar to many of you in North America. There's, so the, the new species present now that weren't present before uh, are Eastern Wood Peewee, Eastern Phoebe, Great Crested Flycatcher, Common Yellowthroat, Chipping Sparrow, and Song Sparrow. And these are all species that you're probably familiar with from sort of parks in your in, in your um, you know, neighborhood or maybe even your garden or something like that. These are all species that can tolerate a pretty high amount of sort of human interference. And so these are species where they think they might have appeared in this area because of land use change farther down. So there were those two houses built, remember? And there was that one little area that was, that was logged. And it's possible that if where those two houses are built, there's now, you know, song sparrows and common yellowthroats and, and phoebes and peewees. Uh, that's not too far from the lower end of their transect. And so maybe those species are appearing on the transect not because of climate change or temperature change, but because of a land use change right. near the lower boundary there. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that they weren't detected in 1976 because we would now think of those as very common species that you would expect to have in pretty much any northeastern forest survey. Yeah, but probably not in a boreal forest, you know, in a large intact boreal forest, That's which is true. what the upper slopes of this mountain are. Yeah. You wouldn't expect, I wouldn't expect a common yellowthroat in, in spruce trees. You know, I expect it in shrubs at the edge of my garden. Right, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I suppose the amazing part is that the entire length of the slope that was surveyed was untouched in 1976, such that they didn't have any edge habitat for those species to occupy. So just going back to, to the fact that they found, you know, two-thirds of the species moving upslope, one-third kind of moving down, or a quarter kind of moving downslope, and then some not moving at all. This, I think, isn't too far out of line with other studies. There are some studies that find everything's moving up, but there are plenty of other studies out there that find a mix of birds moving up mountains and birds moving down mountains. Uh, and so I, I think this is the, the sort of larger trend or pattern seems a little unclear still about which types of species move up, which types of species move down, and, and why is that happening. I read a study recently about uh, by Tingley and Bessinger, I think it was like a 2013 study um, about species in, I'm pretty sure, in California. I'm not positive of that, but on, on a mountain. And uh, they used some, some much more 
complicated statistical techniques. It was a similar setup uh, where they resurveyed an area that had been surveyed in, in that case 100 years previously. So the time scale was longer, but they did the same sort of thing. They, they went back and tried as closely as they could to redo a study from 100 years earlier and compare the results. And they did a bunch of uh, fancy statistics to try to sort of account for how hard or easy it is to detect a species, which is fairly common in bird studies. It's you sort of correct for detectability and that lets you better estimate the actual occupancy or whether the bird is there or not. Hmm. And what this study found is that their conclusions about birds moving upslope and downslope were actually opposite when they just sort of looked, they, they looked really preliminarily at the raw data and they got one conclusion. And then they did these corrections for detectability and got the opposite conclusion. Hmm. So basically, when they, when they more specifically modeled the detectability, it really changed the story that they sort of got out of their resurveys. And so this is a little concerning to me because this, this study that we're talking about today used fairly simple statistics, and there's nothing wrong with simple statistics. In fact, if you can, if you can use them legitimately, they're, they're better, I think, um, because you are, they're much easier to interpret. Yeah. Uh, and there are a few places where you can sort of get confused and make a mistake and not catch it because it's really obvious what's going on. So right. I'm all in favor of simple statistics, but there's at least one other study out there that shows that in this kind of, in the same kind of a system, a mountain system with birds moving upslope and downslope and using historic data sets and then current data sets, that the type of statistical method you use can really change your results. Huh, and so that is interesting. Yeah, and, and I should say that I'm not entirely convinced by that California study that used those fancy <laughs> statistics. They, that study estimated that, I think if I'm recalling correctly, that the detectability of birds almost doubled um, over that time period, which is that it's sort of saying, if the bird is there, how likely are you to actually see it? And they estimated that now in 2017, they're twice as likely to see a bird if it's there than they were back 100 years ago, which doesn't, I, huh. I, that seems a little Right, bird survey techniques me. have not changed that much. I don't imagine that the... Uh... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if historical ornithologists were that bad. Right. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I, I guess I'd, I'm still a little bit up in the air about how much you need to use those fancy techniques. And that, that study in California was using those techniques because they sort of said, hey, we know that the survey methods, even though we tried to replicate them as, as well as we could, we know they're not the same as they were 100 years ago. And so they tried to sort of include that in their statistical model. And that, that makes a lot of sense because yeah. no matter how hard you try, you're not going to replicate it just right. And even this study, you know, the survey effort in this study that we're talking about today is five times higher than the survey effort. To be fair to these authors, I think that they mentioned that they, because they did two years of, of surveys um, mm -hmm. and basically doubled the survey effort, they analyzed both years separately as well as together and found that their results didn't significantly change. So Yeah, but I also think they, they surveyed on multiple days within each of those years, whereas the original survey didn't. I think they still, it's hard to tell because they don't actually tell you what they give you an average number of survey hours at each site, but they don't right, actually... Right, not the actual number of survey hours, yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, they didn't, they didn't exactly duplicate the previous study in terms right. of survey effort. And so 
and, and I think that's one of the problems with their estimates of the lower and upper boundary, and the reason I don't trust those estimates really at all is because they didn't account for that in the statistics. Mm. So, so there's, there's some sort of happy medium there where you have to do enough in your analyses to, to sort of correct for the differences that you, that you know must be there between historical and contemporary surveys. But you don't want to go so overboard that it makes the results hard to interpret or that you get results that are kind of on the border of believability. Sure. To me, that, without going into too much detail in the other study, <laughs> that the doubling of detectability is bordering on unbelievability. Yeah. But just the point is that there's, there's another study in a very similar system that found that the results are still confusing. They had some species moving up, some moving down in that California study also. And the exact conclusions about any given species depended on the, the analysis method. Hmm. Well, so what are your final thoughts here, Wilson, about uh, this article and, and how it contributes to our understanding of bird community distribution? Well, I think that the overall result is that I am convinced by this article that most species are moving up in altitude. On this mountain. Uh, I think this article is not really surprising to me in that it sort of is saying it paints a similar picture to what is being painted elsewhere in the literature was that which is that the way species are moving up and down mountains, bird species, is not exactly what we would predict and and picking apart the effects of temperature from the effects of land use change and, and other things seems to be harder for altitude than mm. it is for latitude. Yeah. Um, and so this is sort of, so with, so when you get that, when you have sort of these confusing, conflicting results, and even within one study, for some birds are going up and some are going down, what you need are just lots of studies in lots of different places, different types of habitats, different geographic areas. And once you sort of get enough of these piling up, you're hopefully able to start seeing some long trends. And so I think this sort of fits in to that body of literature. I'm not, you know... I'm not entirely convinced by this as a standalone study. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make strong statements, even about what's happening on that mountain, because I think there are some problems with the statistics. But nevertheless, the broad picture that it paints is kind of, I think, what is out there right now in the literature, and it's confusing. And and um, you know, I don't think anyone has a good handle on this altitude movement in the way that they do have a pretty good handle at this point on the latitude. Yeah, sure. Movements. I do, I'm really, I find the premise of this study really compelling. Um, the, the concept of trying to figure out these altitudinal shifts and both that concept and the concept of replicating these previous studies, the 1976 study, which, you know, I, I didn't read the complete 1976 study in very much detail, but I glanced through it and frankly it looks like a really interesting study design and... Um, a full replication of it on all four of those peaks uh, could be a really fascinating thing to see compared to that original study. Yeah, I agree. I think these resurveys um, where you find a historic data set and try to go collect basically a, the same thing now, 40 or 50 or 100 years later, is a really great way to get really fine-scale, detailed data that you can't get from broad-scale um, data. And so, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think it's very cool. Um, and, and an exciting method. And I think that um, ornithology is kind of lucky 
because there's a long history of both professional and amateur ornithologists or you know, collecting data and keeping pretty good records of the birds they see. So you can find a lot of historic bird data. Uh, and that's not the case with a lot of other taxonomic groups. You know, if you're looking for historic spider data sets for, for your area, you're probably just out of luck unless yeah. you happen to be right next to a university <laughs> where there was a, someone studying spiders in the 1900s. But, yeah. but with birds, we have a lot of these old things. And so those old data sets are becoming really useful. But also it really makes clear to me how important it is to make sure that your data gets into the public domain somehow. If you're either a scientist doing a study or just someone who's keeping regular records of the birds in your backyard, if those records are around 50 or 100 years from now, they can really be the basis for some pretty decent studies. And so that's one of the main advantages to things like eBird um, and things like that is that it makes sure that your data is going to be out there and discoverable for researchers in the future and make this sort of a long-term analysis possible at a really detailed level. Right. Yeah, like, I mean, the survey effort involved here is so low. The survey effort to replicate that 1976 study is so low that an individual could go out on, you know, one day in the summer and hike Camel's Hump or hike, you know, Monadnock and, or Mansfield, sorry, and, um, basically replicate the, the, the methods um, pretty easily. It doesn't take, wouldn't take a massive amount of funding or energy or, you know, the, the large mobilized resources of a major university. Um, yeah, that's right. This is a study that's very doable in a couple, couple weekends, basically. Yeah, which is really cool, I think. And you get some really relevant results from it. Yep. So in case you want to read this study in more detail or find out more about anything we've talked about today, the study again is called Altitudinal Range Shifts of Birds at the Southern Periphery of the Boreal Forest, 40 Years of Change in the Adirondack Mountains by Jeremy Kirschman and Allison E. Van Curen. And it was published in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology in December of 2007. 2017. 2017, sorry. Volume 129, number four. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie/ecomodel.